recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 7th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I know some people must be getting bored hearing about Martin Luther. Well, this really isn't about Luther, but it's a an integral um, part of history which allows us to understand Martin Luther. I think that this material is um, it's fascinating because through it we will see all of the dynamics in play that caused the Thirty Years' War, the destruction of Christian Germany, I pray by the end of this series, which probably won't be until the end of this year. And, and um, who was responsible for that and why? Because Jews and humanists had fully infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy in Rome, in the papacy, and in Germany by the time of Martin Luther. And those people were holding the German people hostage with fables loosely constructed from their own Catholic religion. I can't really call it Christianity because true Christianity doesn't have a purgatory. You can't buy souls out of hell. Anything that the... Um, the sacramentalism and other things that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, those things were really based on ancient paganism. They weren't Christian at all. However, the German people were a Christian people, and they were being looted and pillaged by nefarious forces, by Jews and humanists. The purpose of this series of presentations, entitled The Devil of Luther's Dream, is to show the condition of the Catholic faith in Germany at the time of Martin Luther, the character of the Roman Catholic Church, and the extant struggle which, which Christians, such as Luther, were having with both Jews and humanists, many of whom were basically the humanists, not the Jews, but the humanists, were basically Catholics turned pagan. And a great number of them were monks and priests. Understanding these things, we may better understand the causes of the Reformation and why Martin Luther and many others believed that such a Reformation was necessary. In our last program, we exhibited the fact that the celebrated Catholic priest, Erasmus, was actually a humanist and not at all a Christian. In turn, Erasmus had fostered the development of an entire collection of fellow humanists inside the Catholic Church organization in Germany. However, we were also able to see in the words of Albert III of Pio, the Prince of Carpi, and from his own correspondence with Erasmus, that humanism had already become prominent within the structured a Catholic church in Italy a hundred years before this time, and that many more conservative Italian Catholics were dissatisfied with that development, himself included. Coffey had spent much of his time over several decades challenging and shooting with Erasmus until he was finally left bereft of his principality by Charles V of Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor. 
With a partial description of these conditions, we concluded that, philosophically speaking, the 1960s had, had really hit Germany in the 1500s, and that it had hit Italy in the 1400s, and that there is nothing new under the sun. These are the ideals, the Jewish ideals and pagan ideals of the Renaissance. For Europe, this was the beginning of sorrows. We have already seen in the writings of students of Erasmus, such as Mutian, that humanists were also basically ecumenists, professing the validity of all religions in the deception that all religions worship the same God. Now we hope to exhibit how humanists were also apologists for the Jews and had fully infiltrated the courts of the papacy and the bishoprics of the empire. I thought we would get all of that done this week. It's going to take two programs to do this fully. Once again, we will be quoting at length from the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johann Janssen. John Jansen. Volume 3, Book 5, published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in 1900. We had left off in our previous presentation with the humanist Conrad Murianus Rufus, one of those Germans who was ashamed of his own heritage and adopted Greek and Latin names for himself. Here, in this case, Latin names. He was commonly known as Mutian. It may be Mutian, who was also a humanist and a Roman Catholic prebendary or senior priest at the University of Erfurt in Germany. Of the situation in Germany at this time, Johnson says, as we left off last week, that Germany was completely overrun with literary parasites, sounds like 1930s New York, charlatans and lampoonists who made the vilification of the church and the clergy and the monastic orders a special branch of their newly acquired culture. And he says culture quite sarcastically. However, many of these, many of these humanists were actually a part of the church itself. While they seemed to be getting all of the press and publicity, as we saw in the reception of Erasmus in his travels, where he was well-received with pomp and circumstance everywhere he went in Germany, not all of the Catholic clergy had turned to humanism. Many of the German monks and other clergy stood against the infiltration of humanism into the church. Understanding this backlash, we may begin to comprehend how it was that the Lutheran church had formed so quickly and so successfully. To continue with this volume, of the history of the German people from page 39. Jansen says, 
It was thus inevitable that the monks should be the enemies par excellence of the poets, the humanists, who called themselves poets. Nor is it to be wondered at that, in a struggle grounded on mutual suspicion and intolerance, often willfully ignorant from fear of false knowledge, the limits of moderation should frequently have been far overstepped. In lecture halls and pulpits, the monks and the scholastic theologians thundered against the poets as the representatives of unchristian learning, which set more store by fine language than by the truth of God. As the promoters of the system of study which lured the young away from all useful and solid intellectual work, they denounced them as godless people steeped in paganism. The time was now unfortunately fulfilled, said preachers and lecturers, in which, according to the prediction of the apostle, referring to the letters of Paul, men would, be tur would turn, away, turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. We've seen in, in um, America and England in the last... Um, well, really towards the end of the 19th and into the early 20th centuries, we've seen um, the destruction of the older systems of classical education in place of public schools, a public school system which is taken to humanism and basically replaced true education with Vapid social programming, basically. This is the same thing that we, we, we've experienced in the 20th century, which was being complained of by these German intellectuals in the universities in the 1600s. And today we complain that children in the West don't learn anything in school, and they don't. In, in the um, the older classical education systems, by the time a youth was 18 years old, he was schooled in scripture, in Latin, in Greek, in, in um, the history of his nation, in, in great depth, in mathematics, in things that today's school children don't even broach. It, it's incredible. And, and that is the result of an acceptance of humanism. To go on with um, with Jansen, the preaching of the gospel. This is the words of the traditional Catholic preachers and lecturers at the time. The preaching of the gospel had never consisted in fine words of human wisdom. The corrupting study of heathen poets and writers must be entirely forbidden to the young. That stream must be stopped at its source, said a Dominican preacher at Cologne in 1516, which is pouring its poisonous waters over the rising generation. Shall we any longer allow the young of our land to be led away by men who do not scruple to put into their hands the most indecent poets of antiquity?
apparently there's audio problems in TalkShoe. I really can't do anything about it at this point. Who explained these poets by indecent glossaries and spiced their instruction with jibes and satires against the church and the pope. And we've seen in the last segment of this presentation that the, the poets were employing the works of, and, and mimicking the works of Roman poets such as Marshall and Ovid, who were very pornographic in their nature and, and um, undermining and, and poking fun at the morals of Christian Germany at the time. They were teaching young men the works of Ovid and Marshall, and, and even things worse than those. It, it was basically a war not only against traditional Catholicism, it was a war waged by the humanists against traditional morality. They spiced their instruction with jibes and satires against the church and the pope, by men who rate the Bible no higher than the heathen writings and who have the audacity to say that more good may be learned from the later than from the Holy Scriptures. And we saw last week that Erasmus in his own letters had made that profession. Let us banish all these poets from our schools, the old and the new alike. For the new are more dangerous even than the old. A sect considered especially dangerous among the holders of these new opinions were those poet humanists who posed under the mask of theology and who exercised an influence similar to that of Erasmus, aiming, like him, at the throwing contempt on scholastic learning as such, it was to this class that Mutian belonged. Before continuing, I, I would want to put this struggle among the clergy of Europe, where a great number of them were humanists and a great number of them were traditionalists looking to end the humanist movement in the clergy. I would want to put the struggle among the clergy of Europe into a Christian identity perspective. Notice first, however, that these monks are not portrayed as having wanting to destroy the pagan literature. In fact, for the most part, we as a society owe the preservation of pagan literature through the ages to monks. The monks preserved that literature for us after the fall of Rome. But here, the monks only desired to, rest to restrict this literature to the young. You don't want your children reading porno magazines. You sure as hell want, wouldn't want your children reading Ovid and Marshall either because it's going to fill their heads with much the same images that the pornography magazines would fill them with. This was for good reason because a lot of that pagan literature borders upon pornography. And Christians certainly should not want to corrupt young Christian minds with the licentiousness of ancient pagan Greeks and Romans. Therefore, to a great degree, the struggle between the traditional Catholics 
And the humanist pagans at this time was a moral struggle. From our Christian identity perspective, however, the pagan works are very important. Not necessarily the pagan works of Ovid or Marshall. They were rather recent in history, first century perhaps. And they themselves were the products of the decadence of Rome, which was described by Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 1, and even by the Roman historian Tacitus. More importantly, more important, I should say, are the ancient poets, especially of the Greeks, there were some important early Roman poets, not many, but the Greek early poets, they are important. The prophets of the Bible consistently warned of paganism and how it corrupted the morals of men and women, those pagan practices, the worship in high places, the things, the bow worship, which was fertility worship in the groves. That's the paganism of Europe. The children of Israel, even with all of the biblical warnings against it, nevertheless went off into paganism, abandoning Yahweh their God in exchange for worldly, ple worldly pleasures. But the pagan literature also contains much history, and that history allows the serious student of today the realization with help from scripture and archaeology that the early Roman pagans and Greek pagans were actually descended from these early Romans and Greeks were actually descended from portions of the children of Israel who had gone off into paganism. Therefore, from a Christian identity viewpoint, if we want to view these works within the big picture and view them properly, and the Christian identity viewpoint is the only truly valid historical viewpoint, we can see the admonitions made to the children of Israel not to accept the ways of the corrupted pagan nations. Then we see those same Israelites accept those ways and adopt those ways in spite of those warnings and go off into paganism. Reading the pagan poets, we can then see exactly what sin the Old Testament prophets were warning about. Studying the New Testament and the later prophets, we see the solution to retrieve our race from out of that sin. However, while the medieval clergy did not have that overall perspective that only identity Christians of today can have, they nevertheless understood that the pagan literature represented degeneracy and they stood up for the scholasticism that provides a foundation of principles and philosophies that are necessary to understanding, to an understanding of the truth and the maintenance of a just society. So it's important that we understand 
the pagan literature, but it's more important that we understand it within the framework of the bigger picture of history and the scriptures. Then we will truly understand the pagan literature. To continue with this volume of the history of the German people from page 40, and this is speaking of Mudian, who we discussed at length last week, and we're going to continue to discuss for some time here. He was among the most violent enemies of scholasticism. He described the war between the humanists and the schoolmen as a struggle between light and darkness, and he inspired the whole body of humanists under his lead with the profoundest aversion for what he called that arrogant, extortionate, irascible race of sophists. Many of his own poems, of which he made presents to his pupils, breathed the bitterest hatred against scholasticism. The aim of his labors was the complete annihilation of the old schools and of all institutions which had grown up under their influence. The academic degree on which the sophists based their authority seemed to him worse than laughable. Where reason points the way, he writes, there is no need for doctors. Men of real culture ought not to waste their energies on acquiring the empty barbarian titles of bachelors or masters. The school, he said, is the province of the grammarian. The theologian is quite out of place there. I'm sure Mudian would rather see his theologians in the synagogue. The theological apes nowadays absorb the whole of the school curriculum into their system and give out all sorts of nonsense. The right proportions in our university staffs would be one sophist, two mathematicians, three theologians, four lawyers, five doctors, six rhetoricians, seven Hebraists, eight Hellenists, nine grammarians, and ten sound philosophers as heads and principals of the whole learned body. Nearly all the disciples of Mutian imitated him in ferocious attacks on the sophists and on the professors of the old universities, and the breach between teacher and pupil became wider and wider at Erfurt as in all the universities where the humanist influence gained ground. Many of the older professors who had been formerly promoters of humanism now took the opposite side and openly declared that the new poets were the ruin of the universities. But Munian only waxed fiercer and fiercer. We have nothing to do, he said, with the opinions of contentious sophists concerning our young flock. The enemies of the fine arts are accomplishing nothing. Whether they will or not, the number of our followers goes on increasing. And as we learned last week, the poets, and, and they considered themselves to be practicers of fine arts, but they were really practicers of... of, of um, basically of vain fables, and, and and as it was explained last week, they sought style, 
and, and, and beauty of language above actual learning and, and, and depth of knowledge. And, and that's the reason that we need scholiasts. The poets were actually advocates of pagan literature, pagan poetry, and, and um, enemies of Christianity. Whether they were Germans or Jews, it's immaterial. They were enemies to Christian foundations and Christian scriptures. Even if the Catholic Church had a lot of problems at the time, those were not to blame on Christianity because the Catholic Church was really never Christian. We go on to, to see Jansen discuss Mutian, citing one of, his, one of Mutian's own letters, quoting it. I congratulate the younger professors at Erfurt, Mutian writes to Herobord von der Marchen, another prominent humanist at the time. But they are setting younger they are setting themselves free from barbarism. He considered Christianity barbarism. He exhorted the humanists, whom he called his Latin cohorts, to stand firmly together in battle, saying that in a short time he would lead them to victory over the barbarians. I should correct that and say that he considered Christian education to be barbarism. He exhorted the humanists, whom he called his Latin cohorts, to stand firmly together in battle, saying that in a short time he would lead them to victory over the barbarians. We must hold out to the end, having once begun this campaign and bound ourselves together by the oaths of soldiers. But even before the outbreak of this religious war, a revolutionary rising in a community against the town council took place at Erfurt in the year 1509. This is the result of the struggle between the humanists and the, the Catholic theologians. And the hostility between humanists and scholiasts was transferred to political platforms. The older professors, with Henning Grota at their head, ranged themselves on one side of the town council, while the humanists showed decided sympathy with the resistance of the popular party. Mutian, already before, bitterly incensed against Grota, who, as a thoroughgoing, thoroughgoing German, objected strongly to the humanist contempt for his native language and literature, now discharged volley after volley of insults on the scholiasts. The, um, the humanists in Germany had embraced Greek and Roman language and literature at the expense of not only Christian literature but also and learning, but also German language and literature. And the older German scholars were offended by that. With curious ingenuity, he proved all German jurisprudence and all the civic laws of the country to have come down from antiquity, especially from the Code of Solon, 
and by arguments from the ancient classics, he convinced his humanist friends of the justice of the popular claims. This is um, Mutian, who is also showing a great degree of um, scholarly deception, I should say, ingenuity. It was madness, he wrote, to believe that princes must always be born such that they often sprang from the lowest ranks of society. Socrates had long ago said that we should have had better rulers if we chose them for ourselves. So we see that Mutian leaned towards democracy. In his letters, he inveighed fiercely against the adherents of the town party and expressed his delight at the poems in which the humanists vented their popular sympathies. Only they must take care not to endanger their own personal safety. He himself always endeavored to avoid all risk. And let me say as, a, as an interpolation that the democracy of Athens may have sounded good on paper, but in 300 short years, they voted themselves virtually out of existence. Herobord von der Martin was the, only, was the only one of the humanist body who took an active part in the fight. Constant scenes of tumult threw all the town business and proceedings into confusion. A quarrel among the students, which broke out in 1510, resulted in the destruction of the, the enraged populace the destruction by the enraged populace of the university building, with its ancient records and charters, the splendid library, and even the colleges and bursas. And according to a note by, by the translator, a bursa was an educational establishment with foundations for the support of scholars. In the destruction of the colleges, in which the young of successive generations had so long kept together in order and discipline, the more keen-sighted observers of later times rightly discerned the cause of the internal decay of the university. Amongst the emancipated students given over to self-government who went forth in bands from the ruins of the university, unrestrained license rapidly gained ground. Mutian's band of humanists also became scattered over all parts of Germany, and wherever they went, they preached the gospel according to their master, spread enmity against the barbarians, and rolled fresh recruits into their own ranks, and returned to Erfurt towards the end of 1512, strengthened for the conflict. The warfare was soon to spread over all of Germany, and to secure the victory of light over the darkness of the monks and theologians, the immediate provocative to the outbreak of hostilities was the controversy of Ruchlin with the Cologne theologians. This battle over the hearts and minds of the German people is not all black and white. 
We can also see many positive ideals. Some of those ideals were expressed by the later founders of the American Republic in the philosophy of these German humanists. In many ways, we can sympathize with them. The idea that all men are created equal before the law, that no man is born with any um, entitlements simply by the, the, the circumstances of his birth over another man. The idea of nobility in Europe, that, that's an idea that free Christian men had despised at this time. There are other things that we can sympathize with amongst these German humanists. In many ways, we can sympathize with them. The system of the medieval scholiasts was in some ways oppressive and restricted the conception of new ideas and free thinking, regardless of whether or not it was valid. We know the problems that the Catholic Church had. But the Roman Catholic Church was never truly Christian and itself was founded upon a different sort of paganism, the imperial paganism of Rome. True Christianity does not advocate human imperialism, yet here Christianity suffers between two extremes, Roman traditionalists and the opposition to it on a part of New Age pagan humanists. Many elements of the organized clergy turned to pagan humanism, and many elements of the organized clergy defended what they considered to be Christian scholarship. And they especially defended Christian morals, because the humanists and immorality seem to have gone hand in hand. It is evident throughout these historical accounts that immorality was the constant companion of humanist paganism, just like it was in the Bible. The Reformation ultimately seems to have saved Christian Europe from both the imperialist humanist tyrants in Rome and the immoral humanist agitators in Germany. Today, the coin has flipped. The humanists finally had their way with the emancipation of the Jews in the dawn of the 19th century. Today, the coin has flipped and the proverbial shoe is on precisely the other foot. The immoral pagan humanists now rule the roost. They call themselves secularists, but they're still persecuting all true Christians. With this, our historian introduces us to the Ruslin, if I'm saying that right. I don't know if I'm saying it right. It's a, obviously a French name. The Ruslin, R-E-U-C-H-L-I-N. The Ruslin controversy. This controversy is an excellent example of the struggle among the Christians of Europe over the Jews and their blasphemous writings. Does the Talmud burn or not? This, too, became a two-edged sword because Ruslin was a scholar in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, and he realized the value of the original languages of Scripture in the study of antiquity and the roots of Christianity. Yet, 
Ruslin also insisted on the preservation of satanic Jewish treachery and blasphemy posing as religion. And in this regard, he was opposed by traditional Christians and supported by pagan humanists such as Mutian. However, Ruslin too was a humanist, and he wasn't even a theologian. Even though he was the son of a high-ranking Dominican monk, his degree was in law, not theology. We will later see that Dominican monks were among his most vocal opponents. Ruslin's interest in Hebrew as the original language of the Old Testament led him down a path that far too many Christian scholars have gone and he began studying the biblical exegesis and commentaries of medieval Jewish rabbis. That's a, that, that's a death march for Christians. From there, he found a Kabbalah and imagined it to contain the secrets that would reconcile Scripture with science. This, too, is a satanic deception. Sadly, like Luther and all others of his time, Ruslin believed that the Jews were the Israelites of antiquity. It is our opinion that with the belief he and so many others had given Jewish mysticism because he believed that the Jews were Israelites, that belief, which he and so many others had, actually gave Jewish mysticism the credibility it needed so that Judaism could be maintained and so that ultimately the Jews could subvert Christianity. However, many of those who wanted to burn the Jewish books, they too also wanted the Jews to convert to Christianity, as even Martin Luther hoped. And that also would result in a subversion of Christianity. Although those who promoted the conversion of the Jews did not realize that converting the Jews, the subversion of Christianity would only be the inevitable result. You can't change a wolf into a sheep, right? However, unlike Luther... Ruslin evidently thought that the peculiar Jewish writings were to be valued as scripture at nearly the same level as the Christian Bible. He downplayed the prominence of those Jewish writings which blasphemed Christ and Christians, and he professed that those writings should be preserved and even disseminated in the universities. Here we shall continue with this volume of the history of the German people from page 44 and the Ruslin controversy. Johann Ruslin was among the first leaders of thought in Germany, who by example and speech and by constantly pointing out the importance of the study of Greek literature, procured for the Greek language a place in the higher branches of university curriculums. And that's good, but it ended up for evil. 
He also rendered substantial service to the cause of Latin study by his Latin dictionary and his translations of the Greek classics into Latin. But his labors in the department of the Hebrew language constitute the most important of all his achievements. It was to him that we owe the first complete system of instruction in Hebrew. It was his wish, by means of Hebraistic research, that by throwing open the original text of the Old Testament, to furnish a healthy counterpoise to the excessive worship of pagan antiquity. For it seemed to him that in the engrossing study of rhetoric and poetry, the Holy Scriptures were in danger not only of suffering neglect, but of being altogether despised by many people. So Ruchelin had absolutely good intentions to start out. That's not how it ended up. As in the study of classical literature, however, so also in that of the Hebrew, there were dangers of a special kind. Ruchlin was by nature strongly predisposed to mysticism. And, and this is the path, this is the dangerous path. Bullinger went down it, so many other men, Christian men that had studied Hebrew, because you have to turn to the Jews and Jewish sources to study Hebrew, end up descending the path to hell. And that's the path Jerusalem took. Jerusalem was by nature strongly predisposed to mysticism. And he soon began to use his knowledge of the Hebrew tongue as a key to the strange world of Kabbalistic lore, the Kabbalah. The man who influenced him most powerfully in this respect was Pico della Mirandola, who had been the first to procure admission for the Kabbalah into the circles of learned men, and who speaks of it in terms of the highest veneration. No systems of science or learning, he says, make us feel so certain of the divinity of Christ as do the Kabbalah and natural magic. And, and that's, that sounds real good, right? But it's all smoke and mirrors. It must be said that Giovanni Pico della Mirandola was from a traditional noble Catholic Italian family who planned for him a career in the clergy. So young Pico goes off to Padua, studying under a Jew at the University of Padua, he became a so-called Christian Kabbalist and a Renaissance humanist. The university ruined him. He based many theological theses on the philosophy of Plato, and he became a friend of Lorenzo de Medici, who supported him for nearly a decade before he died. Ruslin, returning to our historian, Ruslin adds the following to this testimony, meaning Mirandola's testimony of the Kabbalah. The one aim and object of the Kabbalists 
is to raise the spirit of man up to God. And that's how Mirandola is seeing the divinity of Christ in the Kabbalah. Not because Christ is God, but because somehow through Kabbalistic mysticism, Christ was able to raise himself up to the level of God. That's not Christianity. Mirandola was confused. That's satanic that, that's satanic Judaism. That's black magic Satanism, that man could become God. That's Genesis chapter 3, right? That's not Christianity. It's anti-Christianity. And Mirandola got tied up with it, and now Ruchling gets tied up with it. The one aim and object of the Kabbalist is to raise the spirit of man up to God and to endow it with complete beatitude. All who pursue the study of this science obtain in this life the highest happiness and in a life to come everlasting joy. And I thought compound interest was the nirvana of Talmudic literature. I must have been wrong. This is actually anti-Christian because men can be imagined to become as God without Christ and without God's law and apart from or in spite of God's own word. We're to conform ourselves to Christ. We're to conform ourselves to God and his law because we are made in his image. But that's a totally different path than the path offered by the Kabbalah. Therefore, the Kabbalah is merely the continuation of that same rebellion against God seen in Genesis chapter 3, these, that these medieval so-called scholars really turn out to be clowns trying to take like a shortcut to Christ, right? In two works, back to the historian, in two works entitled respectively De Verbo Merifico, which means of the wonder world, of the wonder working world, and De Arte Kabbalistica, meaning of the Kabbalistic art. Rushin lays the basis of a semi-supernatural, semi-rationalistic theosophy. So we think that theosophy really came into being in Britain in, in, um, in, in the, the 1800s with Crowley and Blavatsky and all those turkeys. It, it's really hundreds of years older than that, and it's really rooted in Judaism. Theosophy is Judaism for Gentiles. His leading idea in both books is that a visible world is the image or reflection of an invisible one, which it stands in the most intimate with which it stands in the most intimate correlation. And and by saying that, we we see that in the um, in the Kabbalistic mind, heaven is just as corrupt as earth. That reflects a belief in a God made in the image of the Jew. In my purview, allied with this idea. 
is the belief in the magic power of terrestrial elements over their corresponding forces in the celestial world. That's basically satanic black magic. A special efficacy is assigned to those letters of the Holy Writ, which are individ- which individually are in miraculous union with the individual angels who carry the government of the netherworld. At the utterance of certain words, God is beheld by our minds and, as it were, reproduced within us, and that's definitely satanic black magic. Ruslin justifies the mystic, Kabbalistic interpretations of the five books of Moses by the argument that if there were no mystic wisdom concealed in these books, they would have no higher value than other books whose contents are equally moral and didactic. And there he sounds very much like Erasmus. The art of arranging the letters of Holy Writ in magic order was, he asserted, conferred on Moses by the Almighty. From Moses, it came down to Christ. From Christ, by transmission, to the 70 translators, and, and that's basically the translators of the Septuagint, and Ruslin has the order rather anachronistically because they lived 300 years before Christ. And from them to the company of the esoterics, which is actually evidently the Jewish rabbis, right? The Talmudists. Ruslin's estimate of Pythagoras as a man in almost every respect at one with Christian beliefs is quite consistent with these opinions. According to Pythagorean philosophy, he says, faith must must not be subjected to any operation of logic, for mankind will never attain to a clear apprehension of the basis of religion by mere processes of thought. Hence, religion has never presented itself as a product of human speculation, but always as divine revelation. I must interject that serious students of the classics must be aware that Pythagoras, none of his own writing survives. But we have citations and excerpts of his, of his ideas and his writing, which are found in other classical authors. And reading them, it must be realized that Pythagoras was influenced by the study of, by a study of the Hebrew scriptures. However, he came to be familiar with them. It's almost certain from everything, every quote that I've read from Pythagoras, which, and they're found in Diodorus Siculus and other histories such as that. He definitely had a profound influence from the Hebrew scriptures. Ruslin, back to Jansen, Ruslin was far from any wish to injure the cause of Christianity and the church by his mystophilosophical system. On the contrary, he imagined that he had struck new light out of the Hebrew books for the better understanding 
of Christianity. That's a very pagan and, and sophistical approach to Christ, which is totally out of line with the prophets and the law and the gospel. His opinions, however, even if regarded as mere philosophy, philosophy only, were well calculated to turn men's brains, especially as they gave great encouragement to the tendency already strong in mankind to put oneself in immediate connection with the spirit world. Mutian was delighted. His Mutian, the, the humanist, was delighted with de verbo mirifico and expressed the hope that Ruchlin would accomplish all that Picodella Mirandola had predicted. And here the translator notes that, that the sources for this information are from correspondence between these men, which survives to this day. Cornelius Agrippa delivered lectures on this Christian and Catholic work, Cornelius Agrippa being another German humanist, one of the poets who despised his own language and culture and took Latin names for himself. And, and I wouldn't be surprised, I can't prove it, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these humanists who took Latin names weren't really Jews trying to hide so they could operate with the poets under Latin names and be accepted. So here we should perceive a convergence resulting in the union of humanist pagans, Jewish Kabbalah, the promotion of immorality, the breaking from Christian tradition, and the Roman Catholic clergy because Mutian was a Roman Catholic prebendary with a lot of Roman Catholic clergy for followers that were all humanists. While we cannot dig down to the level of everyday exchanges between 15th century university students and their Jewish influence to see the real devils in the details, we certainly can see the Jewish influence in medieval society and in the universities of Italy and Germany, which was at the root of this pro-Jewish and humanist movement. This is why all true Christians should see their white pagan so-called brethren as little but whores for the Jews. That's all these men were. It is the Jews who have greatly instigated humanism and neo-paganism, coupled with immorality in Europe from the very beginning. As we see in the life of men such as Mirandola, Pico della Mirandola, and now with Ruslan. Continuing with our historian from the bottom of page 46, several theologians, on the other hand, spoke disparagingly of it. In reading Ruslan's books, wrote John Collette, 
One is made to feel as if the magic lay more in the words than in the things. There must be rare secrets indeed contained in the Hebrew letters and signs. Ah, me, of such books and such wisdom there is no end. There is nothing better for us in this brief span of time than to live purely and nobly, to strive daily after perfection, and to seek indeed to attain that, that which these Pythagorean Kabbalists hold out before us, but which we can only lay hold of by the fervent love for Jesus and by imitation of his example. And this seems on the surface to be praise, but it's actually a rebuttal of this idea of Pythagorean Kabbalism. In serious apprehension of another invasion of Judaism, the Dominican monk Jacob Hoogstraten, professor of theology at Cologne and religious inquisitor of the provinces of Cologne, Mayence, and Treves, entered the lists against Ruchlin in a pamphlet entitled Destruction of the Kabbalah, in which he showed that the Jewish mystics did not support the articles of the Christian faith, but on the contrary, denied their truth, and that Ruchlin's book was full of errors. When Ruchlin's De Arte Kabbalistica and Hoogstraten's confutation of it appeared, a lengthy controversy on the question of the Hebrew books was already in full swing. At the beginning of it, Ruchlin had astonished his contemporaries by taking part with the opponents of the Jews. And, and, and this, Ruchlin really did a couple of um, sleight-of-hand changes during this portion of his life. He um, started out all in favor of the Kabbalah and the Jewish writings. Then he writes this pamphlet against them, and then later on he will once again change horses in the middle, in the middle of the stream. At the instigation of a certain nobleman, he published, and we don't know who the nobleman is, probably some Jew. At the instigation of a certain nobleman, he published in 1505 a missive with the title, Why Did the Jews Remain So Long in Captivity? Now remember that this man isn't even a theologian. He's a lawyer. He's trained as a doctor of law. In this pamphlet, he explained that the captivity and exile of the Jews, lasting more than 1,300 years, counting from 70 AD to this point in history, was a just punishment for the godless crime they had committed against the Savior of the world. Now, this is a pious position for the time when we understand the Christian awareness at this time. But it shows that Ruchlin, as well as all of his contemporaries, were misled into believing that the Jews were the Israelites of Scripture, which they, in fact, are not. 
and never were. As scripture proves, dispersal of the Jews was vengeance against God's enemies, while the ancient dispersions of true Israel for their punishment began nearly 800 years before that time. Ruchlin goes on, well, the historian goes on to quoting Ruchlin, the sin of theirs, he said, continued perpetually so that day after day they were guilty of fresh blasphemy, reviling and dishonoring God in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus, the true Messiah. They call him, says Ruchlin, a criminal, a sorcerer, a malefactor, the gracious virgin, his mother, they call Haria. We may have heard that. We may remember that name from Martin Luther's explanation of the same thing in his treatise on the Jews and their lives. And the apostles and disciples, heretics, and all of us Christians, they call outcasts. The German word unvolk really seems to mean non-people. And foolish heathens. All Jews up to the present time, so long as they continued to be Jews, he said, were participators in this blasphemy towards God and took a peculiar delight in inventing fresh ways of harming Christians. This was manifest in all their proceedings and in their daily prayers, in their books also, which are written and read out against us. The worst part of it, is that the Jews will not recognize that all this which is committed against our Lord Jesus is sin and wickedness. For in this way they cannot come to any recognition of their wrongdoing or improvement of their lives. And so long as they remain altogether stiff-necked in their sins, they must also continue endurance and exile. I pray God, that he will enlighten them and turn them back to the true faith so that they may be set free from the yoke of the devil as the community of the Christian church prayed devoutly for them every good Friday as they slaughter Christian children. And if they would recognize Jesus as the true Messiah, it would be well with them here in this world and in the world to come forever. And of course, that's not God's intention for the Jews. But Ruchlin and all these other theologians thought, took it for granted that the Jews were Israelites. The error that the Jews were Israel leads to the error of a hoped-for conversion to Christ, of, the, of these Jews. The apostles of Christ knew better. And just when this heresy came into the medieval church, I do not know. It surely was not a part of the Christian scriptures. However, the Jewish question was indeed, and I do know, it was indeed debated in the church long before this time, for many, many centuries. He concludes with the following generous offer, meaning the conclusion to Ruchlin's statements on the Jewish exile. If there is any Jew who would like to be instructed concerning the Messiah and our true faith, 
I will willingly receive such a one and provide for him so that he may have no anxiety for temporal necessities, but may be able to serve God peaceably and in freedom from care. The conversion of the Jews then could only be hoped for, so the theologians and canonists had repeatedly declared when they cast off their grasping spirit earn their living like Christian citizens by honest trades and industries and were compelled to surrender all those antichrist books by which hatred of Christianity was continually kept alive, above all, the Talmud. In several pamphlets published between the years 1507 and 1509, the converted Jew, Johann Pfefferkorn, urged the above demands anew and in perfect good faith against his former co-religionists. Now, Pfefferkorn, you'd think, oh, that's German. No, he's a converted Jew. This Johann Pfefferkorn, he's going to be a character as we proceed through this history. And this complicates matters quite a bit because Pfefferkorn is later set up, sets himself up, as the primary opponent to Ruchlin in the matter of the Jewish books. Apparently, even in the 1500s, 1600s, the Jews were able to grasp onto and maintain control of both sides of the arguments over Christian society. That's what Pfefferkorn's role is here. In the first of these, the pamphlets written by Pfefferkorn, in the first of these, the Judenspiegel, he began by a resolute condemnation of the persecution of the Jews. So we have a Jew claiming to be a convert to Christianity who's defending the Jews. And that, if we look behind the words, that's Pfefferkorn's real role, to keep the world, to keep Germany safe from Judaism. He began by a resolute condemnation of the persecution of the Jews and defended them against the crimes laid to their charge, especially the accusation that they were obliged to use Christian blood for their sacrifices and for this purpose to slaughter young Christian children. Well, beloved Christians, he exclaims, I entreat you, give no credence to this. He urged that the persecutions which the Jews underwent deterred them from adopting Christianity. So Pfefferkorn was basically employing Freudian psychology on Christians in the 1600s. This sounds like so many so-called converts of Judaism to Christianity today. This sounds like so many Jewish apologists among the white nationalists of today. Pfefferkorn was like the brother Nathaniel of his own time. He set himself up with these pamphlets as a leading critic of the Jews, but he was really defending the Jews. And all the while, 
He's excusing the Jews for their behavior and their crimes while managing to sound like a Christian. And it gets worse than this. Back to the historian. Having thus done justice to the Jewish side of the question, he, meaning Pfefferkorn, went on to insist that the Jews must renounce the practice of usury, earn their bread by honorable work. Christians had been insisting on this for centuries in Europe. None of these insistences are new. Attend sermons at stated times to hear the word of God preached, and above all, give up the Talmudic books. In a later pamphlet, he declared that, from the way in which these blind Jews kept the Easter festival, they could no longer be followers of Moses, but were mere Talmudists, repudiators of the Old and New Testaments, and deserving of condemnation according to Mosaic law. The Talmud, which was their seducer, must be taken from them. So if we take the Talmud away from the Jews, they'll suddenly be good people. That's the idea there. And, and we know that's not possible. And then they would soon change in heart and mind. Now, we see that later on, the true German Christian, Martin Luther, adopted the same arguments as remedies against the Jews. And if Luther's steps were, were um, actually put into practice, yes, it would have set Christians off on a right foot, but converting the Jews would have still resulted in the destruction of Christianity, running them out would be the only acceptable solution, short of the Holocaust they all deserve. Having thus, I'm sorry, I've already read that. In this pamphlet, as well as in two others, the Judenbeit and the Judenseend, he described, in terms of strong condemnation, the wanton wickedness of the Jews towards Christians and exhorted the later not to tolerate the Jews amongst them in their present reprobate condition. And that's the same things that Luther repeated later. For they were cursors of Jesus Christ and his blessed mother. He did not, however, go so far as to demand the banishment or extermination of Jews. And, and of course not, because... He was a Jew. His mission was to help ensure Jewish survival. He only asked that the measures proposed above should be adopted and enforced. If, however, the magistrates bribed, possibly by gifts of money from the Jews, refused this petition of the Christians, he advised the later to have recourse to prayer to God and also to make appeal to other Christian rulers. Of these, the emperor was the highest, and to him, Pfefferkorn himself resolved to turn for help. Through the instrumentality of several monasteries of the Dominican order, which protected the Christians zealously against Jewish usury and advocated the suppression of Jewish books, Pfefferkorn obtained letters of recommendation to the emperor Maximilian's sister, Kunigund, 
widow of Albrecht, Duke of Bavaria, and the Duchess Cunegonde, or Cunegonde, approving of his scheme, recommended him to her brother. On August 15, 1509, Maximilian issued an injunction to all the Jews of the empire to the effect that they were to bring all and any of their books which were directed against the Christian religion, like they're just going to admit that, right? Or against their own Mosaic law before Johann Pfefferkorn as our servant and loyal subject of the realm, as a well-established and learned believer of our faith. So this Jew Pfefferkorn sets himself up as an expert he ingratiates a woman, and then he becomes the guiding light for Christians in regards to the satanic Jews. The pagans, they're whores for the Jews, but the Catholic Christians, they're dupes for the Jews. They're not much better than the pagans. Peppercorn was invested with authority to take all these books from the Jews and confiscate them, albeit in every place, with knowledge and discretion, and in the presence of the priest and two members of the town council or magistracy. By a later decree, Maximilian transferred the management of the whole business to Uriel, Archbishop of Mayence, and commissioned him to examine the books which Pfefferkorn had already seized in different places, and to collect the opinions of the universities of Mayence, Cologne, Erfurt, and Heidelberg, as well as those of the chief inquisitor, Jacob Hoogstraten of Cologne, and of the priest, Victor of Carbez, and also of Johann Ruschlin, and we have seen that Ruschlin was a defender of these books and a Kabbalist himself. The real person that should have been handling this was the chief inquisitor, Jacob Hoogstraten. We see that this Pfefferkorn, this Jew, set himself up and ingratiated himself and got into the company of Maximilian, and he petitioned and received authority in this instance. And he had no business in it because Hoogstraten, the real Christian, he was the inquisitor at Cologne. And it was his position and duty. So Pfefferkorn is really undermining Hoogstraten, even though Hoogstraten is also listed in this decree by Maximilian. His position of, of authority in this matter is obviously diminished. Ruchlin's opinion was more favorable for the Jews than might have been expected from his missive. So Ruchlin is pro-Kabbalah and all for the Jewish writings, and then he writes this missive that was surprisingly um, disfavorable to the Jewish writings, and now he's flipped sides again. 
and his opinion here is more favorable to the Jews. The historian continues, it was to that effect, according to law, that only the manifestly libelous books he could be destroyed, and that all others must be preserved. And Ruchlin goes on to say something pretty incredible. He says, as for the Talmud, Christ himself had enjoined the preservation of these books, because in them also evidence for the Christian faith could be found. So Ruchlin vacillates between being an apologist for and a critic of Judaism, and then, in the end, he defends them. He defends their books and the idea that they should keep them by employing some perverted idea of what would Jesus do, as if even Christ would support blasphemy. And that's basically his conclusion. Oh, Christ would have supported this blasphemy because it, the books mention Christ like boiling in semen in hell. So that's evidence for the Christian faith. It really went pretty far. He really stretched that one pretty far. He continues... As regards the occult portions of the Talmud, there was no justification for destroying even these, because superstition and error must be mixed up with human reason in order to the strengthening and testing of true believers. And here, Ruchlin displays his own sympathy for the Kabbalah and his own humanistic reasoning. That's humanism. That's not Christianity. The historian continues, the opinions of the four universities were all different. Heidelberg arrived at no decided verdict, but appointed a committee of learned men to consider the question. Erfurt pronounced that the emperor and each of the princes in his own dominion ought themselves to take away from the Jews all of their books which libeled the Christian religion. My aunts insisted on the suppression of all Jewish books, and for the present, even their Bibles, because there was grounds for suspicion that they had been falsified wherever passages favorable to Christianity occurred. Cologne, and this is the university that really counts in this matter, it was by far the largest and most influential. Cologne was in favor of leaving the Bible to the Jews, but not the books of the Talmud, the burning of which had already been ordered by several popes. Hoogstraten and Victor of Carbez agreed with this last opinion. In November 1510, the collective opinions were, by order of the Archbishop of Mayence, presented by Pfefferkorn, the Jew, to the Emperor, who was then at Freiburg. Maximilian handed the documents over for decision to three theologians, among whom was the famous Carthusian prior, Gregory Reich. The verdict of these theologians accorded with that of the Cologne University. 
the Bible might be left in the Jews' possessions without danger, but all the rest of their books must be taken from them, whether or not they were works which might be of use to the Christian religion or to the Jews themselves. The books were to be collected all over the world by the archbishops, and, and notice the word world, meaning the German world, by the archbishops, bishops, and other ecclesiastical commission, commissioners with the help of certain lay officers. They were then to be examined by men versed in the Latin and Hebrew tongues, those pronounced harmless, restored to the Jews, and the remainder either burned or divided among Christian libraries for the use of students. And this commission offers a bureaucratic solution, which in reality is no solution at all, because it could never have been enforced practically. And in the end, it meant nothing. But all this great book question came to no issue as do many such bureaucratic machinations. The emperor declared himself satisfied with the opinions, but would not act on the final decision without the concurrence of the diet, the diet, the, the council. Nevertheless, the case never came on at any later diet. So they put Martin Luther on trial, but they wouldn't put the Jews on trial. This is not, however, the end of the argument. We shall see that this debate rages on for at least several more years, when, in 1515, Ruslin and Capricorn were finally called before the Pope, before the de' Medici Pope, the humanist. With this question of the Hebrew books, however, there came to be associated a controversy of the greatest importance for the intellectual and religious life of the nation. In his statement of opinion concerning the Jews' books, Ruslan had made a personal attack on Pfefferkorn, calling him an ass who understood nothing whatever about the books whose destruction he was advocating and had indulged in innuendos, innuendos against the rascally fellows who had adopted Christianity from base motives. It's about time somebody in Germany spoke up about all the converso Jews, but Ruslin does it for the wrong reasons. These insults had not been intended for publication, and Fetricorn had only come to know of them in his official capacity. But nevertheless, he animadverted upon them in the most violent manner in his Hanspiegel, published in 1511, as an offense against his personal character. Ruslin, in his Augenspiegel, answered with still greater violence, calling Fetricorn a base, dishonorable villain, a man cursed with the devil's nature. He took the opportunity also of disclosing in this publication, amongst other things, the memorandum of advice he had drawn up from the emperor about the Jewish books with an explanation of it. So Ruslin, his mind is divided against himself. He's attacking Fetricorn with innuendos and casting dispersions because Fetricorn's a converted Jew. And at the same time, 
he's defending Jewish books, and he's a Christian Kabbalist. So Rush Lin is really a confused man. Now, of course, we would not defend the Converso Jew Pfefferkorn, but Ruslin was being unfair in his assessment because Pfefferkorn was not the leading advocate of the many Christians who also wanted to destroy the books of the Jews, men like Hoogstraten. Pfefferkorn had only maneuvered his way into being a spokesperson for them which was actually to the advantage of the Jews. So the Jews, they love to control two sides of the argument. We see that all the time in, in modern days. It's, it, it's, a, it, it's a strategy of theirs for probably ever since Genesis chapter 3. Back to um, the history of the German people from page 53. Neither Pfefferkorn's Hanspiegel nor Ruchlin's Augenspiegel was of the nature of a party propaganda, but consisted solely of personal attacks. The Cologne theologians had no part in the Hanspiegel, nor Ruchlin's humanist followers in the Augenspiegel. But on a strength of these two pamphlets, the two hostile camps were soon formed. This almost, this almost sounds like a battle between Christian identity pastors, but on a much greater scale. On a much greater scale. However, on a serious note, here we shall begin to see that Rush Lin was in favor of preserving the Jewish books and leaving them in the hands of the rabbis, and that the pagan humanists had voluntarily taken the side of Rush Lin, including Gideon, who later on became a vocal supporter of Rush Lin. Pfefferkorn, who was a converted Jew, wiggled his own way into being the spokesperson for those Christians who saw the blasphemy of the Jewish books and wanted to destroy them. Back to the historian. The Augenspiegel, which appeared in 1511 at the Frankfurt Autumn Fair, caused the greatest excitement. Now, this is Ruchlin's work, right? caused the greatest excitement and was soon distributed all over Germany on the pretext that this pamphlet contained false and anti-church teaching. The Frankfurt clergyman Meyer, by order, as he said, of Uriel, Archbishop of Mayence, sent a copy of it to the theological faculty of Cologne which, by papal authority, possessed, and this is why I said that Cologne was the most important of the four universities, which by papal authority possessed the supreme right of censure in Germany, just as at that period the University of Cologne, with its 2,000 students, still held the first place in size, importance, and fame among Rhenish universities, Rhineland universities. So the Cologne Theological Faculty stood at the head of all the theological faculties of Germany. The most distinguished of its members were Arnold von Tungern, 
the head of the Laurentine Bursa, and the two Dominican monks, Conrad Collin and Jacob Hoogstrat. As soon as Ruchelin learned that his book was to be criticized by Arnold von Tungern, he wrote to him on October 28, 1511, that he considered himself fortunate in having assigned to him a judge who was himself a distinguished scholar and a venerator of learning and who made allowances for human weakness, that in setting forth his opinion, he had had no intention whatever of hurting anybody's feelings, still less of offending a university, and that he honored learning, and above all, theology, but that he had never studied the subject himself. Ruslan's making apologies for himself, and, and he's kissing Arnold von Tungern's ass and that he quoted theological extracts in his writings much in the same way as a country clergyman might talk of medicine in his sermons. If he had made mistakes, he begged that they might be pointed out to him, and he would be ready to correct them. For in all points, he wished to continue firm in his obedience to the church and preserved his faith unspotted. In a letter to Colin, with whom he had long been on friendly terms, Ruslin expressed himself in a similar strain. Colin replied on January 2nd, 1512, that it was not surprising that a doctor of law should make mistakes in theology, that the faculty would send him the objectionable passages, pointing out what they wished altered in them. The faculty thereupon addressed a letter to Ruslin, representing to him that by the publication of his opinion, he had thwarted the emperor's proceedings against the Jewish books, and laid himself under suspicions of favoring Jewish heresy. His Augenspiegel, published in the German language, was being read and distributed by Jews who were delighted that so learned a man as Ruchlin had taken up their cause and was protecting their writings against Christ and the Christian faith, and that in support of his opinions, he had perverted and misquoted passages from Holy Writ and had furthermore been guilty of many objectionable, objectionable and scandalous assertions whereby he had cast doubts on his own orthodoxy. It was with great pleasure, however, that the faculty learned from his letters to Tungern and Colin that he wished to persevere in the faith and that he was ready to correct any erroneous matter. They herewith sent him a list of incorrect assertions and passages that he had perverted, and they begged him to recast them in more accurate language, or else, after the example of the humble-minded Augustine, to retract them altogether. After such conciliatory explanations on both sides, one might have expected a peaceful settlement of the matter, but nothing of the kind happened. This is where we shall end this presentation for now.
When we pick up here next week, we will see that Ruslin, the Kabbalist lawyer, changes his attitude and digs himself in to defend his position. The humanist pagan Mudian and others then began to defend his cause. The Jews must have been gleeful, and the matter is ultimately, ultimately laid before the humanist, de' Medici papacy. The pagans and the humanists were defending the writings of the Jews in the early 1600s. I'm sorry, in the early 1500s. Praise Yahweh. I will be here Friday. I don't know what I'm doing yet Friday. I might do open lines. I might do a minor prophet. We'll see where the week brings me. The announcement will be made at Christagenia. I will be here next Saturday with more of the Devil of Luther's dreams. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.